Blog Talk Radio. everybody and welcome to the 566th edition of the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show. I'm your host Daniel Feuerstein. Get your daily I'll be uh your host here tonight for anything and everything American soccer as we're going to dive deep into the US men's national team's performance in this World Cup that was played in Qatar. Joining me tonight from World Soccer Talk, of course, my good friend Robert Hay, as we will discuss this uh, performance from all the parties involved. And Robert, good evening and welcome back. Thanks, Daniel. It's great to be back. And uh, I, I know we didn't want to do the wrap-up show this soon, but I'm glad that we're able to get together and talk about the U.S. Uh, this year and then in the future. Absolutely. Um, you know, we're going to go all the way back to the announcement of the roster, and then we'll go to each and every match that the U.S. men's national team played, uh, the positives, the negatives, and uh, maybe even a brutal, honest delve into this situation. First things first. When Greg Berhalter announced his roster in Brooklyn, New York, uh, that was seen live on ESPN, um, in your mind... What positives did you see from this roster originally, and what negatives did you come across when Burhalter made these announcements? Yeah, so, you know, looking back on that announcement, there's a, a few things that stood out. And, you know, the first one is, I'll, I, I think I've done this throughout the World Cup run, is, you know, associated this comment with uh, our friend Carter Krishnire. Um The addition of Tim Ream to the roster I thought was positive. Um, I have not been as vocal about my... Uh, hope that he would be included as Kartik and others have been, but I do think that his experience, you know, playing with Fulham, being a captain, you know, being on a side that is a side that has to struggle against relegation for promotion constantly, that that was a very positive thing to have on a team that is younger, very young. Um, that kind of veteran leadership experience was a good addition. We've talked a little bit about the goalkeeper situation, the, you know, Zach Steffen not, you know, being left off and, and having Matt Turner basically, based on the announcement, be seen as the starter, um, how that was a little bit surprising to a lot of people, but um, as we'll talk about, that seemed to be a good um, you know, portent. Um, and then it's hard not to talk about this without, you know, having the current results color the perspective, but, you know, thinking back to some of the forwards that were selected, some of the attacking players that were selected, um, I don't, you know, there was, for the most part, everybody made sense. You know, there were some quibbles about certain players that were left off. But for the most part, I mean, when the roster was announced, it made sense overall. Um, I think it's perfectly legitimate to, to criticize certain picks here and there. But the takeaway, at least I remember the takeaway being that night was, okay, Greg Berhalter's making some good, tough choices. He's making some controversial choices. But... Overall, this is a roster that makes sense for what this World Cup is, you know, a World Cup in the middle of the of club season in Europe, um, younger, bringing in some of these, you know, a lot of our young superstars, supplementing it with some different players, including, you know, the veteran leadership team, Reem. But overall, that um, but um, looks to be a good representation of where the U.S. men's national team is currently, you know, young, talented, um, with some better some gaps. So that, that was my recollection from that night, which seems now like a year ago. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, you know, I have to say uh, on my end of things that uh, I was not to say I'm happy to see certain people not being on the roster because that's not how I feel. Whoever gets picked gets picked and that's the end of it. That's all I can say. And whoever I'm going to say, you know, correct pick or incorrect pick, that's fine. I never felt that Zach Steffen should have been on this World Cup roster. Um, as I've said many, many times uh, to my audience, 
and to anyone who wants to listen to my thoughts and my opinions, um, Zach Steffen basically is a backup who basically only played every once in a while, either during a um, uh, an FA Cup game or a League Cup game. And for him to even get any time as a World Cup qualifying starting goalkeeper was also wrong. And I'm glad that Berhalter recognized that because even though Zach Steffen uh, became a starting goalkeeper for Middlesbrough on loan, the truth is he was absolutely having a nightmare season on loan with that club. And I, I just felt that he's just not ready to make that move. And it's one thing to be in a friendly there's another thing to be in a confederational championship, like whether it's Euro, a European Cup, or a Copa America, or even a Gold Cup. I mean, that's fine, whatever. I mean, I don't care. But for him to not have that a strong mental game in a World Cup, like one of the biggest tournaments that this game produces every once every four years, that big, big stage. I've always felt, look, you've got to have a goalkeeper that's not, re- not just ready to go, but, you know, has the mentality to really attack oppositions, attackers, and to stop the ball without an issue. And, you know, I didn't think he was going to be right to be uh, on the national team for this particular World Cup. Tim, uh, I thought Haji Wright was a surprise, a complete surprise. Uh, and I also agree that Tim Ream uh, was a surprise as well because not saying I didn't want Tim Ream on, on the national team for this World Cup, I, I felt that they needed a veteran presence like Tim Ream, who's been doing excellent with Fulham, but I thought Tim Ream's time with the national team was over. Not saying I want it to be over, but I felt that his play in the Nations League games, especially in the final against Mexico, I thought his time was done. But, you know, he reinvented himself. He really looked strong out there. And I was very, very happy with his performance in this World Cup. Uh, and now, of course, we move on to the games. What do, what do you make about that first match against Wales? I thought they were ripped, roaring, ready to go in that opening half. Obviously, we know what happened in the second half. Zimmerman, uh, reckless tackle inside the area. Uh, against Gareth Bale that led to a penalty being awarded to Wales. And, of course, Gareth Bale will not miss from the penalty spot. But outside of that one moment, I thought the U.S. had a very good opening match except for the disappointing dropping of two points. Yeah, and I think, you know, th- that match kind of, we at the time we saw it as, okay, here's where, you know, this is a good model for the United States. And if they can, you know, maybe work on some of their finishing and so forth, you know, then we really are in good shape. But I think looking back on it now, at the end of the run, it really showed that um, it kind of highlighted the flaws in the United States that we would have throughout this World Cup run. I mean, you know, as I said at the time, in the first half, really Wales was just gifted them, uh, gifted us a uh, just (laughs) – they played probably the worst game they could play, and, and they didn't improve much throughout the tournament. So the fact that we were able to score a goal is great, but really we could have pushed for another goal and I think a two nothing lead in that situation would have been almost um, conclusive. So it, it kind of highlighted the problem that the U S would have, which is the finishing and creating opportunities that we saw throughout this tournament. But it also highlighted, you know, the good, strong defensive performance. I mean, it, it, um, it allowed, you know, it created this MMA, you know, midfield people got to first look at that and how good that would become. And it also showed really how our defense could be, um, you know, could be solid if it's put in the right place and not challenged, you know, in a way that highlighted their weaknesses as we saw later in the tournament. So I think at the time, um, you know, it was a it was a slightly misleading result. Um, I think that the United States did decently with what it was given, could have done better, but um, there was definitely some positives and looking back on it, some negatives that we should have learned from there. No, I agree with you there because there were some negatives, and we'll get to that in, a little bit later on in the show. Um, we move on. We take on England. That ended as a scoreless draw, but I really felt from start to finish, maybe England had a little bit of an advantage in the opening 10 to 15 minutes, but outside of that, 
our guys looked ready. Our guys looked hungry, attacking wave after wave, just basically pressing the English, looking great. I mean, you know, the tons of, of chances that they had, unfortunately they couldn't convert, especially Pulisic nailing the crossbar and out. The amount of corners that they earned in the second half, two, three, four, five corners in a row. And if not for Harry Maguire in the middle of the area for England to head the ball away, um, you know, let's be honest, this would have been 3-0 U.S. I mean, I can mm-hmm. definitely say without a, without a shadow of a doubt, the United States could have won this one three goals to nil. And unfortunately, no goals scored. Harry Kane had that one last gasp moment to pull one in to make it 1-0 England. He missed the net going wide. But in reality, this should have been the full three points for the United States. And even though we got the draw, maybe a little disappointing they only got a point. But in reality, I'll take that as a victory no matter what because how many times have we seen after these draws for the World Cup that the England, the English and, the, and us, the Americans – are drawn in the same group, and every single time, the English soccer media, the English football media, always makes a joke or a crack saying, this is a win. This is a win for England. There's no way that England's going to lose to the U.S. And it's always egg on their face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to think back about this match and see, you know, what impact one goal would have made. I mean, we talked, you talked about the Harry Kane goal at the, you know, in stoppage time there in the second half, but what happened, what would have happened if that goal would have gone in besides, you know, the obvious swing in points? I mean, what's the narrative for the United States coming out of the world cup, if that would have happened? Because I mean, honestly, we were, you know, very, very close to having this really negative um, reaction to our world cup run. Um, I mean, like you said, inches away from having a very different perspective on how we did in this World Cup. So it's it's always interesting in this game to just see how narrative comes um, based on, you know, small things. And I think, you know, I agree with you in terms of overall run of play. I mean, England started out strong, we're pressing, the United States adopted, you know, adapted to that and really executed an excellent uh, plan to kind of neutralize the English midfield, reduce their scoring chances and even not get burned by the um, the advantage that they had on set pieces, which we are talking about coming into the match, that that was going to be a huge, huge issue. Can we neutralize, or not even neutralize, can we avoid being burned on set pieces, uh, both offensively and defensively? You know, it was, it was by far um, the best game plan that uh, Greg Berhalter came up with in this tournament. Um, and, you know, credit to him, credit to the team for executing. I mean, for whatever reason, you know, it's a small sample size, but the United States always plays England well, and um, in the World Cup, I should say, and uh, or at least plays them interestingly in the World Cup, and uh, that continued here. So um, I think it created a model for um, kind of where the United States can find success and what style of play. But that being said, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about managers later, um, and I'll touch on Gareth Southgate later. Um, but there is something to be said for lack of creativity when it comes to managing. And I think that England suffered here, you know, at the time, uh, you know, Christian Miles mentioned, you know, Jack Grealish coming on and a couple of other substitutions that came on a little late that may have made a difference. Um, but it almost seemed like Gareth Southgate was as conservative as he could be in this match. So, um, you know, coming out of it, what, you know, the takeaways were, you know, the United States can play with the best in the world because England, for all their faults at the moment, are one of the best teams in the world. Um, if, the, you know, if it's a good matchup and the United States uh, young players could, um, you know, could hold their own. So um, it was definitely a positive feeling. But again, you know, a goal one way or the other really changes the narrative in this match. And I think that's the, that's the thing to take away from this is, some people tend to just write narratives based on what happens, but it's also important to think about what very well could have happened. And if we would have lost one, you know, one nothing, uh, would we be feeling the same way? And I'd like to think yes, but um, it is an interesting question to ask. It really is. And that's the one thing I think right now we have to look at and to say, in all honesty, um, yes, Southgate, his, shall we say, 
uh, hoping for a tie or being, I would say, at the same time, a little nervous and scared against our players. But at the end of the day, you know, it was a tie. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, two points, another two points dropped, unfortunately. But once again, we should have had full three points. And then, of course, the uh, the final group stage game, <coughs> excuse me, as the U.S. defeats Iran by a final of a goal to nil. And it was Christian Pulisic who got the only goal in the match uh, around the back end of the first half. Uh, of course, he, uh, as they say, earned a pelvic contusion. I still claim he got kicked in the nards, but that's just me. And uh, couldn't finish the entire match. And the U.S. thought they had a second goal from Tim Weah, sadly, just a, a little bit offside. And, you know, the knee was a little bit ahead. But in that second half, uh, playing desperation football by both Iran and the U.S., the U.S. Def- uh, desperation defending while Iran was desperation attacking. And even though they tried to goat the referee into giving them a penalty, which honestly they did not deserve because there was no penalty to be given in the first place, the United States gets the full three points. They defeat Iran um, I don't know how you felt about this match, Robert, but personally for me, revenge for the loss back in 1998 in France, where we lost to Iran by a final of a goal to nil uh, in that World Cup. And I was very happy to see the U.S. get that victory and five points in total to move on into the second round. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. It, it I feel like there was a there's a definitely a different feel to this match than it was in 1998, and a lot of that is for I think geopolitical reasons that's probably best not to delve into too much right here. But um, you know, it, it was it, it was a very interesting feel going into the match, um, and, and it's almost important to set aside the politics because um, I mean we knew this was going to be a very uh, you know this is going to be a grind out match. I mean we knew what both sides needed and we knew what their strengths were, and, and going into it we talked about you know. A couple of things. Could Greg Berhalter hold his own in the technical area? You know, could this young U.S. team play disciplined soccer, knowing that they would have to they'd have to score and win to advance? And they, you know, and, and Iran knows exactly what they needed to do, which is play into their strength of, you know, hit on the counterattack, let the U.S. Uh, just kind kind of try and create chances. And again, going back to the previous two matches, the U.S. hadn't created uh, hadn't done an excellent job of creating goals. So. Um, it was a good matchup of strength versus strength and weakness versus weakness. And what we saw was, um, you know, the U.S. come out aggressively and grab the first goal, grab the only goal it turns out, but, you know, grab that first goal, which is exactly what they needed to do. Um, you know, we talk about a lot of, you know, some U.S. soccer fans think like they would rather lose, they would rather lose pretty than win ugly. And I think that's, and I know that's 100% the wrong attitude to have. A, a match like this one was exactly what you need to do in qualifying and in major tournaments, which is win in advance. And that's what the U.S. did. Um, you know, Christian Pulisic, it was, it was, I hate to say it, people were wondering if he, this, if he would ever get a, a break in this tournament. He got a break. Uh, unfortunately, it cost him um, a pelvic contusion, as you said. Um, yeah, we'll leave it at that. Uh, pelvic contusion originally initially <laughs> called an abdominal an abdominal injury. Um, I don't know my anatomy, but I know enough to know that was not abdominal. Anyway, uh, but you know it gave him that moment, and I think you know that was a great moment for him, and it's one we'll see um, you know probably over and over again in U.S. soccer commercials. But then the U.S. you know was able to they did not repeat the mistake of what they did against Wales, and that was I think the big concern. And we talked talking points going in with you know camera CCV starting um, next to Tim Ream and him playing a professional solid match with no major mistakes, you know, no stupid fouls. There was a couple of close ones, but, you know, any good referee is never going to call, you know, the contact that we saw in the box in the second half. Um, But he played a very professional, very smart game, which is exactly what the U.S. needed. And, um, you know, we had an overall, you know, ugly match, um, but exactly, the U.S. did exactly what it needed to do, which, which was enough to win. You know, grab that goal, hold on, and advance. And I think of all the three matches, you know, um, I think that one was the most promising to me. That one gave me the most hope. Once I got my breath back, I remember not being able to talk for a, a few minutes. 
Um, but really, um, I know the England match was maybe the better tactical masterclass, um, and um, you know maybe the goal uh, for Wales, you know, in the Wales match was definitely a prettier goal. Uh, but in this case, it's the idea that the U.S. with its back against the wall, fairly hostile crowd in terms of you know number of fans there for the opposing team, um, was able to hold its own and do what it needed to do. Um, I felt that that was a good indicator that this team could could get results in different ways. They could they could do the tactical you know the tactical smarts and play England to a draw, but they could also get the ugly win in a hostile environment, which they do in CONCACAF, of course, but, you know, this is a very different situation. So uh, I felt very positive coming out of that match. I think there was a lot that um, was good for the team. And, um, you know, we'll talk about the future, you know, in a bit, but um, it'd be interesting to see how the U.S. can replicate that kind of a match over the next four years in order to get itself ready for the 20th. In every World Cup, there's matches like that. And if you can't grind out a win – you know, hello, Spain, if you can't grind out a win, doesn't matter how pretty you are uh, in terms of your play, you're going to get knocked out. You, sometimes you just got to get that goal and, and uh, get the get the results. Exactly, Robert. And now, of course, they move on to the round of 16. And, I mean, we have to be honest with our assessments here with that match, and that is Louis Von Hall had a master class against Greg Berhalter. It's not the question of how well they did in this match, the U.S. It's more about how they were taken advantage of. But at the same time, they just basically were caught ball watching and they did not mark the proper people when they got scored on. Now, look, Haji Wright gets lucky, scores a big goal to pull one back at the time to make it 2-1. The Dutch are a world-class side with a world-class manager. And the truth of the matter is this, if you don't fall asleep at the wrong time, then you'll be able to hold on and maybe you'll have that 1-0 victory and you move on into the quarterfinals to take on Argentina. But unfortunately for us, it's, uh, you're, you're, you're done in the round of 16 and everyone's heading back home or heading back to their clubs uh, for their European seasons. Yeah, absolutely nothing wrong with losing to the Netherlands. I mean, I think that um, we tend to, to forget about the Netherlands because they don't have the the massive stars of the past, you know, the massive scoring stars, the beautiful ball, uh, you know, ball, um, uh, you know, handlers, that we, or ball handlers, fell into the NBA there for a minute. Um, you know, the, the guys who can just make magic with the ball at their feet um, and are, you know, legends. Um, I mean, this is a very good Netherlands team. Uh, I think we all know that. And, um there's nothing wrong with being outmanaged by Louis Van Hall. I mean, the man is is revered for a reason, and I think that there was a lot of chatter after the match that I was reading about. You know, there were fans who were you know upset. Well, why couldn't we adjust? Why did we fall into this trap in any way? And, and there were some quotes by Van Hall that seemed to suggest that the U.S. Um, that they knew that you know that there was gaps in the U.S. Um, side and they could exploit them without there there being adjustment. Those quotes have since been proven to have been kind of mistranslated. But, I mean, the, the end result is um, this U.S. team is far from a perfect team, and the Netherlands were a bad matchup to begin with. And, it, it, you know, having a tactically smart manager who, by the way, adjusted his tactics, adjusted his formation to, to you know, to address the U.S.'s shortcomings um, and did it successfully really shows that a lot of times there is an advantage to being savvy without being without overthinking. And I think that's one of the, the values that we saw with the Van Hall and something that he does well. And so, you know, I think it's unrealistic to ask Greg Berhalter to outthink Van Hall. But could the U.S. have done better? Could they have made better, you know, lineup choices and so forth? Of course, um, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking is, an easy, is definitely, you know, an easy thing and, and justified in some cases. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, the day with this match, it was a, you have a Netherlands team that um, has, it has strengths that play to the U.S.'s weaknesses. And I think it would have taken, um, you know, some better bounces. I, I think the U.S. I, yeah. Go ahead, please. Well, I was going to say, well, I agree with you about that, better bounces with the ball. But I think at the same time, I think there's a positive and there's a negative. I think the positive is this. There is a nice future for this national team. I, I really believe that this national team 
regardless of where they play, it doesn't matter if they play in MLS or they all play abroad, if they play in Europe or they play in Mexico, they play in South America or anywhere around the world. The truth is, is this. The future is bright for our players that are getting time at, you know, historical, uh, you know, famous clubs like Manchester United, Manchester City, Juventus, um, you know, with Leeds, with Chelsea or Arsenal, uh, Barcelona, if they get the opportunity, you know, Real Madrid, uh, Borussia Dortmund, and so on and so on. The future is very bright. But in reality's sake, with the negatives, I think the negatives are the naivete of some of these players sometimes because I'm not saying they believe in their press clippings, but what I'm saying is, is that when you're not paying attention to the entire game all the time, that you're going to get caught in your own trap and then you're going to allow the opposition to put one past you. And when they got one past them early and did everything they could to level the score, they switched off again. And then they got a second one past them before the halftime whistle blew in first half time. And then, of course, look, you're, you're, you're playing catch up. You're chasing the game. Yeah, you pulled one back, but then you got caught ball watching again. You fell asleep and you got burned again with some of the best players in the world and at the same time, some of the best managers in the world. Yeah, and I think that's where the youth factor comes in. I mean, you can be playing at, you know, Barcelona and and all of these storied clubs, but, you know, at the end of the day, if you've only been there for a couple of years, there is a, there is a, um, an advantage to age. And I think, you know, again, going back to like the Tim Reams of the world and, you know, you look at um, the Netherlands and some of the veteran players that they have, you know, Ailey Blind and, and Memphis Dupai and, and, and Virgil van Dijk and all these folks who have been through this grind before, um, there's a definite advantage there. And so looking ahead, the hope is, is that the U.S. roster, these players that will be back in 2026, um, can take this experience and learn from it and use that to um, continue to advance in the next World Cup. So I think that's the big takeaway is what can, we, what can these players learn from this experience to, to, for the next four years? And now we go to Greg Berhalter. Um, you know, look, Robert, um, you know, I'll start it off by saying I was not uh, thrilled with how he was hired. I'm not saying it's his fault. I'm just saying that I was not thrilled with how he was hired, where U.S. soccer uh, automatically said we're going to do a coaching search when they, all they did was just say, Greg, you're in, and that's it. We're just saying this for the heck of it. And when they claimed that they did have a, uh, a head coaching search, and they said Oscar Pereja, and Pereja comes out and says, well, no, they never contacted me in the, at all. You know, a lot of question marks. And you know, the way that Greg was talking about making the U.S. men's national team into Barcelona, I mean, right off the bat, that is just absolutely pie-in-the-sky thinking because that's not what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to force American, you know, a bunch of American players who have different traits and different styles of play to play a system that is meant for a club side match in and match out all the single time, not in a national team setup because you don't have the national team players all the time. And I really think that, you know, during World Cup qualification, I think Burhalter made mistakes going into qualifying for this World Cup. And when he was managing this World Cup, he still made mistakes. I think he made some I mean he he made some mistakes where you it's not that the starting 11 was not on point it was but then the substitutions were not on point and that went on for all three games until you get to the round of 16 match against the Netherlands and I understand Josh Sargent was doing an excellent job with hold up play in the middle of the pitch with the ball and that's fine but when you don't have Josh Sargent in, you know, up front to hold the ball against the Netherlands, who are you going to put out there that, okay, if he doesn't play the way Sargent plays, who has the quality at least to challenge the Dutch? And as, as happy as I was for Jesus Ferreira to get the start, let's be honest. Jesus Ferreira should never have started this match in the opening 45 because that's not his game. He is more of a target striker on the ground because when he makes runs without the ball and when you find Ferreira, that's when he pounces. 
He doesn't hold up the ball. You have Ferreira up top to attack, not to hold up the ball. And honestly, either Giovanni Reyna should have started the match or Haji Wright should have started the match. Because even though he did some good things against England, Haji Wright, and yeah, he almost scored or he didn't get clean chances, he was still a threat up top. And I thought Haji Wright did a very, very solid job attacking. And when it comes Mm -hmm. to that game against Iran, Cameron Carter-Vickers, I thought, was an excellent choice on the back line because it's not so much I didn't trust Walker Zimmerman. I did trust him. But I felt that if you're going to have a match against Iran and you're going to find a way to get a lead on them, you know as well as I do, Iran can play physical. And you Mm -hmm. needed someone like Cameron Carter-Vickers to absorb the physicality that Iran can play. Because if you're you're not going to have a a center back that's going to be tough as nails, not just physically, but mentally. I mean, Mm -hmm. he could have basically, you know, waned mentally, and then Iran sneaks in a goal, and then the U.S. is down, and you don't know if they're going to get a second. So... Mm -hmm. There are some positives with Burhalter, but there are also some very large negatives. And the biggest mm-hmm. negative has been about Giovanni Reina. How do you see that on your on your end? Yeah, so uh, you know a few things to to mention in reaction to what you said. You know, number one in terms of the the Barcelona quote that always grates me because I think U.S. soccer in general has an issue with communication. Um, you know, they got to stop drinking their own Kool-Aid. And it would be nice to see a manager challenge them on that. But, um, you know, obviously that's not uh, Greg Berhalter's style. So I think that's unfortunate, but not a disqualifier. You know, look, it's hard to find a world, you know, a a, a, a transcendent national team manager. I mean, I think that's the, the big thing is there's so few out there. And those that are out there are hard to get. And, um, you know, they aren't always available. And so the question becomes, and this is a question for, pretty much every nation in this in this world or who, who qualifies for a World Cup is, you know, who is the right manager for this squad for this set of years that we're looking at here? And so, you know, Greg Berhalter in this World Cup and even before it in the qualifying and so forth, some definite positives that came out of this. Number one, he showed that he was willing to go against the narrative to do what he felt was right. And I think that's an important um, that's an important element in the national team manager. I mean, it is so easy to fall into the hype, the pressure, and so forth. You know, we talked about this during the, the post games. The easy thing is to, to have Zach Steffen, you know, in goal. The easy thing is to have, you know, this player or that player play these different positions because that's what's expected of this team. And that's what this team has been told is how they're going to line up for years, even by the federation itself, you know, going back to their, you know, Project 11 or whatever they called that thing where they hyped 11 players it's easy to fall back into the expected because when it goes wrong, you can just blame the, blame the narrative and say, well, how was I to know this player wouldn't work? He, Bert Halter went, did not fall into that in every situation. And he did, you know, go with his gut on Matt Turner or go with the, the analytics or gut with Matt Turner, Tim Ream, you know, uh, you know, way where he was, the midfield, so on and so forth. So there's a number of examples of him making the right decisions that were counter narrative there. He did show some tactical acumen. He did pick some tactics and some decisions and strategies in this World Cup, and uh, more so in this World Cup, I think, than qualifying, that showed that he and his, his team, his, his staff, have the ability to sit there and come up with a game plan that can um, frustrate the best, some of the best countries in the world. And that's obviously very important for a World Cup. Um, the third thing is, and I think you saw this with his handling of the media and everything else, um, in the past few months, we've seen fewer missteps and more um, of a, an acumen in dealing with the noise around this team. It's not as bad as, you know, you mentioned earlier England and their stupidity or some other countries where if you, you know, you give up a goal, it's, it's you know, the worst thing that could happen to anyone ever in the history of the world. But he did handle the noise around this team very well. He deflected controversy. You know, this was a very quiet thing. The negatives, of course, are – you know, there's questions about playing favorites. You know, Gio Reyna, that never went away. That's the exception to the media rule because that controversy never went away. And it's not just because he didn't play him consistently. It's because he didn't control the narrative and the U.S. soccer didn't control the narrative. So what happens if a similar situation arises four years from now that could derail, um, 
you know, derail a, you know, a run in the World Cup. And if you want an example of how to deal with it, let's watch Portugal over the next, you know, next match and the past match to see how you deal with controversy around player selection. Um, he still benefits from a federation that is more forgiving than some. Um, and, you know, he, the, CONCACAF, obviously, you cannot qualify from CONCACAF. We saw that in 2018. But, you know, he had a softer, uh, an easier qualification system, and that allowed the U.S. to not address the warts that we saw in this World Cup. You know, some things like player development, player selection, and so forth. So at the end of the day, Greg Berhalter is – I mean, he is what he is. He's a mixed bag. He, he does some things right. He does some things very wrong. You can trust him on some things. You can't trust him on others. And the question is now, you know, is he the right person to take this, if he wants to, take this project into the next four years? Um, and um, that's a question, and Daniel, please feel free to cut me off because this is like one of my passions here. Um, this is a, one of the toughest questions that a federation can ask itself, is who's the right person to take a group of players, you know, through multiple cycles. of. The narrative is you never rehire a manager after a World Cup. That seems to be the stereotype. If you look at this World Cup, you can see that that's really not the case. You look at France, you look at England, you look at Brazil, you look at Portugal. They have managers that have stayed on for multiple cycles. And what's the key to their success and why it works for them? You have managers that can work well with a core group of players that are key to the success of the team. They have shown success at the highest level, if not in the World Cup, then in other tournaments that are very competitive. And they know how to handle the off-the-field nonsense. Look at France, for example. Remember 2010? There's been nothing like that in their locker room or in the media, you know, since, you know, anything close to that. And we know that, you know, there are some teams that would have some players that that is what they thrive on. So the question is, can Greg Berhalter, does he fill those three requirements? And if the answer is no, is there anybody else the U.S. can bring in? And I think the answer to that is, if the U.S. and I, I have the room, I think it's, it's, I don't know if it's confirmed yet. I think it is, is that the U.S. will be in the Copa America 2024. If the U.S. can show success there, and by success I mean like really make a run in Copa America 2024, I think that's the proof that you need for Greg Berhalter is a good choice for 2026 because he will never be a perfect manager. But I think over the next two years or so, when the U.S. likely doesn't have to qualify for the next World Cup, if there's no growth of the player pool, if there's no changes in the core team, if there's no if the, if the same faults keep popping up and up again, it's not too late to change your manager in 2024 or even 2025, or as Morocco showed us, even 2026 and you know Croatia before that. There's, it's never too late to change your manager until that first ball is kicked in the World Cup. So I think it makes sense for Greg Berhalter to get some more time. Let's see if he can continue to develop this team, and there will be plenty of opportunities to do that. But if it looks like it starts to stagnate, he's got to go and you got to replace him because the 2026 World Cup is too golden of an opportunity to waste on, well, we're going to go with something comfortable, a guy who's comfortable in the, in the tactical area. Well, you know, Robert, I mean, I, I do agree with what you're saying, but, you know, my feeling about my feelings about Greg Berhalter is this. I personally believe he's too Jekyll and Hyde. The worry I have with Greg is he'll get something wrong to start the match, and then he's going to make the, the adjustments at halftime to fix it. And we, I, I mean, you know, we can't keep having a tale of two halves always popping up on this national team when you know and I know that our talent is getting stronger and better. And yes, unfortunately, we are in CONCACAF. Yes, we are in a confederation that, you know, at this moment in time, the United States right now, we are the only dominant force in this region. You would say, you know, Mexico is there, but Mexico has now fallen into a tailspin. Canada now they're starting to become stronger and, and better, but they're not there yet. And I think their naivete in this past World Cup or this current World Cup that's going on, I think it showed because, listen, not saying I didn't think Canada was going to get out of the group, but you can see after a strong performance against Belgium, even though they fell 1-0, that they were just 
falling apart all over the place against Croatia and got destroyed by Morocco. So while I'm happy for Canada that they're improving, and I'm happy that I'm happy that the Canada is now making the North Zone a big block in this confederation. The truth of the matter is this: right now we are the bigger power. We are the big power. It's no longer a one-horse race with Mexico. It's no longer a two-horse race with Mexico. Mexico is falling apart right in front of our eyes. Oh, what's going to happen with them going down the you know down the road in two thousand you know next year, two thousand twenty four, two thousand twenty five, even as a you know tri host in the World Cup two thousand twenty six. So we're going to have to wait for that. And my problem with Burhalter is is that he's going to continue to shoehorn players who don't fit his system. And this is why I keep saying this: forcing players to build from the back, to bring the ball up into the opposition's end of the pitch is wrong because you don't have enough players that play that style for their clubs. You know, people want to, you know, laugh at me or, you know, call me crazy because, well, how can Aaron Long, you know, pass the ball from the back line? You know, that's the most common thing you have to do. But the point is that Aaron Long doesn't play that system for the Red Bulls. Aaron Long plays in a press, and the, and, the, and the center backs are not passing the ball forward. I mean, yeah, they pass the ball, but they're passing the ball very quickly to the midfield or to the fullbacks to bring the ball up. Because the center back's job is to hustle back and defend on run-back defenses. That is what they are told to do in a press system. You cannot force Aaron Long or even any other center back that does not play that type of style or that type of system from Burhalter by forcing a round peg into a square hole. You can't do that. It's, it's not so much, well, you can't make a simple pass. No. It's about how does Aaron Long fit in a system that does not suit him. That's why you... You know, you, 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 you mingle, you, you, know, you tinker as a club head coach. That's your goal. And it also makes me upset and angry, like I said already, you're putting in Jesus Ferreira, who has never played a single World Cup match in the group stage, yet you force-feed him into a, a match against the Dutch, and he hasn't done anything with the ball. And I'm not saying it's his fault. It's Greg's fault for not putting in either Haji Wright or Gio Reyna, who's probably more suited to go and attack. Now, if you want to, pr- you want to protect uh, Gio Reyna from injury, okay, fine. I can understand that. Then put in Haji Wright. But if you know that you're going to be facing a damn good Dutch team that can take advantage of what's going on, and under a manager in Louis van Gaal who knows how to tinker the tactics that he knows what he needs to do to win because even he said it in his post-match press conference the U.S. never changed and when you're stuck going at it and you're not making adjustments in that in the locker room at halftime outside of substitutions then you're dead in the water and you're going to be out and Greg's lucky he wasn't three and out so down the road I agree with you if you're going to keep Greg Berhalter because nobody is there ready to go or available to take over for him to start 2023, then fine, keep him. But the point is, is this. If we're going to see the same things over and over and over, that's going to give not just fans of the U.S. men's national team that are going to give them headaches in this cycle. But, you know, what's the media going to do? What, what's the media going to report? What are they going to tell us? That this is, a, this is normal? We should be expecting this? No. Everyone wants to see the U.S. men's national team finally get into a position where they are a favorite to finally win the World Cup. We haven't been in the quarterfinals since the 2002 World Cup in South Korea and Japan. 
have not been into the semifinals of a World Cup since the first one in 1930. And I know that's a long, long time ago, and we can't really set our sights um, you know, going all the way back to 1930. But the truth of the matter is this. We haven't been there in a very, very long time. And someday, one day, we have to say to ourselves, our boys are good enough to finally win the whole damn thing. And we're not going to get there unless either Greg finally learns from his mistakes or you find a manager that wants to be here to take our talent to that position. Because if we're not going to, if U.S. soccer is not going to do this the proper way, well, are we still going to stay stuck in a rut? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you bring up a great point that I really agree with, which is this idea of taking advantage of the, the situation in front of us. I mean, it's easy to forget based on how horribly Qatar played in this World Cup, but there was a time very recently that hosting the World Cup was seen as your best chance to win the World Cup. And, and that's history has shown that, you know, really being a host is a major, major advantage in this tournament. And so U.S. soccer really needs to orient itself towards this goal and we know that they're really bad about goal setting lest we forget the you know was it the the world cup in 2010 if i remember the the year correctly you know this idea of like we're going to win you know five years after we hosted or whatever they're really bad at goal setting but in this situation you probably don't have a better opportunity to compete for a world cup than you do four years from now and maybe that's a controversial thing to say you know I, i i don't necessarily agree that the the curve of history is always up, especially with U.S. athletics. You really have to focus in on four years from now. And this is your golden opportunity to, not only because you're hosting, that's a huge advantage, your talent pool is growing, the core group you could potentially have is young on this team. We see some, you know, obviously in this um, World Cup, some really great young talent. Not all of them will be on the roster in 2026. I hate to break it to people, but some of these names that we fell in love with in this World Cup will not. There will be new names, but we at least have a core of players that we could potentially draw upon. You know, our, 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 our young talent is developing not just in the U.S., but across Europe. So we have a talent pool potentially to draw from that is really growing and a sophistication, hopefully, to the Federation that can align itself to this idea of we want to win the World Cup in 2026. And when that's your goal, you're going to have to make tough choices. And it's it's going to potentially make sacrifices. So, you know, so here's some of the controversial things you may have to consider. If you fire Greg Verhalter, do you hire a non-American coach? You know, this nonsense of, you know, last time, you know, not interviewing Spanish-speaking coaches. If the best opportunity, if the best coach out there speaks Portuguese, you go hire him. He can learn English, you know, in his spare time. He or she can learn English in their spare time. You know, you go hire the best coach for this team to win the World Cup in 2026. You bring in the players that will help you win the World Cup in 2026, no matter how big their endorsement deals are, and you know, no matter what the name of their club is. So the U.S. really has to make the decision now. The Federation has to make the decision now to say we will do, strictly and legally, what it takes for this team, to put this team in the position to compete for and potentially win the World Cup in 2026 because this is our best chance in the foreseeable future to do that. We have all of the advantages that come with hosting you know, or co-hosting, whatever, hosting the World Cup. I am not optimistic about that because the U.S. Soccer Federation has many flaws and I've been very public on how I view some of their management decisions on many different issues. Um, so I'm not 100% sold that they can align themselves to this goal and make the tough decisions that to do what it'll take. I mean, I think the allure of, for example, having an American manager lead out the team in, you know, Miami or, or wherever the, the opening match will be is might be too great for them to really make a hard choice otherwise. But, um, I mean, now's the time to sit down and say, what do we need to do to, to get this team in and, you know, to compete for this World Cup in 2026 because if they don't make these decisions now or set themselves on the course now, they're wasting a golden opportunity. Yep, they really are. And I think that's the one thing that's missing at this moment in time. Because if you look at our young, youthful talents, most of them are coming through uh, Major League Soccer club academies. 
We already talked about what the New York Red Bulls have done. We already talked about what FC Dallas has done. Even the Los Angeles Galaxy, LAFC, um, you know, the Philadelphia Union Academy. All of these kids coming out of the academy system, playing in MLS, and are now – I mean, if you watched the CONCACAF Under-20 Championships, it's not just going down to Honduras and taking out all of these teams that are playing in either the Caribbean nations, which we know they're not strong enough, some of these Central American nations that – have good players, but they're also not strong either. I mean, facing a Honduran team who is not only hosting the, the under-20 championship, but beating them handedly, 3-0, 4-0 in the semifinals, and not only qualifying for the FIFA under-20 World Cup for next summer, but now back in the Olympics, they're going to the French Olympics in 2024 and you can say without a doubt who on that roster can compete for a spot in the 2026 World Cup roster who and I'll be honest with you right now I it would not shock me either the Aronson brothers will play together or Paxton might upset Brendan it won't shock me anymore. It won't. Because you're seeing the fruits of our labor and of American soccer's labor finally doing it in the Confederational International Tournaments. Whatever happens this upcoming Gold Cup, we'll have to wait and see without any World Cup qualification this cycle. The USA, along with Mexico and Canada, are going to go... I mean, there, there's reports out there saying that it's a done deal, but I want to wait till it's officially done from Conmi Bowl, that our three major teams are going to be in this upcoming Copa America for 2024. And that is what our guys need. Solid, healthy, hard-fought competition against some of the best in South America. The truth of the matter is this. You know this as well as I do, Robert. The South American teams are going to go out and just kill each other but whoever gets out of the groups to go into the knockout rounds of the Copa America. And I don't know how far our boys will go into the Copa America in 2024, if it is official, official, officially official, I should say. But they need this type of competition, match in and match out. Because no offense to, to Victor Montagliani as president of CONCACAF. I think he's done a fantastic job improving the confederation, picking up where Jeffrey Webb uh, you know, dropped off. But the truth is this, defeating Aruba, St. Kitts and Neves, and um, Anguilla is not strong enough competition, including facing Grenada in the Nations League group stage, for the U.S. to be successful in CONCACAF and around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I think the player that really gave me uh, hope in this cycle, and this is you know, I'll probably get mocked for this one, is Matt Turner. Um, and the reason why is not because he plays for Arsenal, although that's always a nice cherry on the top for me. Um, but the reason why is, um, you know, his path to, to get where he was on this World Cup team. You know, he wasn't chosen because he came through the, the sexy MLS academies. He wasn't chosen simply because he was an MLS player. But he worked his way to the point in his career where he earned a starting spot on this World Cup team. And I think it's the diversity of paths that the U.S. players now have to get to uh, potentially being on a World Cup squad that's the encouraging thing. You could be, you know, our players are not debuting in England or Germany at 26, 27, 28. They're debuting at 16 and 17 players. Some of the players are staying in uh, the MLS academies and in the youth systems here in the U.S. and growing there and, um, you know, building their career there. And so if you're a promising U.S. soccer player, with money, there is a number of paths that you can take in order to develop your career. And I think that's the encouraging thing is the fact that we're no longer limited to a certain type of player. We can pick players from any type of system or setup simply because they, they make sense and they have qualified for this squad. Now to get to your point about, you know, competition, just like with the manager, um, 
you, these players have to be tested because we know that even the players who are young, not all of them will be on the roster for 2026. Because if you just roll over your roster to another World Cup cycle, um, that's a recipe for disaster. I mean, look at how Germany failed to successfully, you know, integrate new players into its squad. But, hey, at least they, you know, won a World Cup out of it kind of thing. So um, you've got to bring in young players. You talked about, you know, the youth side, you know, participating, you know, growing through tournaments and stuff like that. This is where, again, the U.S. Soccer Federation needs to dedicate itself to just win, baby, win. You know, we need to see players in competitive tournaments. We, You know, the U.S. should roadshow as much as possible. I know Nations Leagues and, and, and Continental Tournaments uh, are hard to do. I would be happy if the U.S. team never did not play a match in the U.S. for one calendar year. I would love for them to roadshow as much as possible simply to get that experience, you know, of, of – testing themselves in front of, you know, adverse conditions of different types. We need to ensure that the player pool is vetted and tested in as much competition as we can get them. Because if we just sit back and say, okay, we're going to play 10 friendlies in um, Massachusetts, Indiana, Ohio, Colorado, and California, and we're going to bring in countries and we'll just, you know, bring players through camps there – you're not going to set yourself up for success in 2026. I know the World Cup's in the U.S. and Mexico and Canada in 2026, but that's not the kind of environment that necessarily builds character and builds, you know, confidence in adverse conditions, you know, adverse situations on the pitch. And so really, again, the Federation needs to sit there and say, what are the pathways that we can keep bringing in players, cycle through players, and allow the competition to take place? And whoever the technical director is, whoever the manager is, has the opportunity to like take a look at a list of players at every position and say, you know, no longer is it we're taking this player because this player is the only player that can play it, you know, right back, defensive midfielder or whatever. Like this is the only person that'll work. It, we want to get to the point where the manager and the technical director and whoever else can sit there and say, here's a list of players for every position. Which combination of players will make sense on the squad? for the 2026 World Cup. And when we, if we are at that point and we have a list of players that are vetted and have played in tough competitions and hopefully succeeded in tough competitions, that's how you're going to get ready for this World Cup. It's not going to be business as usual. The U.S. Federation needs to get rid of business as usual for this and, again, really focus on what will it take to win when we have the golden opportunity to do so. And it may mean tough choices. It may mean sitting there and saying Tyler Adams, who has been a phenomenal addition to this side, who has really revealed himself and is going to make millions of dollars in the next season or two. Um, we need to make sure he has competition for his job because it's easy to sit there and say he's Captain America from here on out until he doesn't want to be. But do you have the courage to challenge him or to have players challenge him for his job? And if the answer is yes, then you're on a good path to um, getting a good squad together for the World Cup. But if the answer is no, we don't want to challenge him, or no, we don't have any players who can challenge him and others like him on this team, you, that's a recipe for failure. And I think that would be what would undermine this team going into 2026. I think the big question is this, Robert. Does U.S. soccer, and I'm not trying to be funny about it. I'm not trying to use certain words to, uh, you know, claim something outrageous, but the truth of the matter is this. Does U.S. soccer have the bite? Do they have the instincts? Do they have the killer instincts to step up to the microphone and basically yell out, we really want to win the, to win the World Cup. We finally want to bring that golden trophy to Soccer House and do it right now. Do they want that parade down the Canyon of Heroes in New York City and say, we want to finally show the world, not that just we're here, not that just we're, you know, we're hoping we're going as far as we can, to actually have the stones, to have the chutzpah, to go out and say, we're coming for it, we're going to take you on, and we don't care who's in the way because we're not afraid of you. That is the mentality of Soccer House of the board of directors of, of U.S. soccer that I believe has been lacking for a good while. 
Well, and to bring up a sore subject, I mean, the, I think the example is, is you know, if you look at the women's soccer side and the scandals around, you know, the, the situation around um, the abuse of, of women's soccer players, um, the changes that have not taken place there show, I think, is what what I fear about this federation, which is simply they talk a good game, but can they back it up? I mean, they will come out and say that our goal is to win the World Cup. They will 100% do that. They'll, you know, there'll be Budweiser signs next to it and so forth. But the question is, is can they make the structural changes that it would take to do that? And um, I, I, I need to see it. I don't see it right now because I've seen it over and over again that the talk is there, but the actual changes, the decisions, you know, it, 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 time and time again, I think we get burned by the leadership here. And, you know, whether it's the transparent, transparent hiring process we talked about earlier or, you know, the, um, the friendlies that avoid certain places and, you know, the matches that only tend to end up in a handful of places, it, it, I think we're going to need to see, you know, show me that you care about the change and you want to make, you know, a dedication to this. And I, I don't see it right now. And that's the concerning thing to me. They'll say it, but do they back it up? Very true, and we'll see what happens down the road. Robert, as always, thanks for joining me tonight, and I appreciate your time, and uh, hope to talk to you soon in the new year and uh, the rest of this uh, current year. Happy holidays to you and your family, and as always, thanks again for coming on. Same here. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Robert Hay from World Soccer Talk joining me tonight on this important recapping of the men's national team uh, road in this World Cup effort, and very happy to have him on. Join me next Friday as we will preview the final round of qualifying for the 2023 Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup first round draw. Who will go to the opening round for the best in club football in the United States for the Lamar Hunt Championship Trophy as national champion. Once again, thanks to Robert Hay from World Soccer Talk joining me tonight. My name is Daniel Feuerstein. Thank you very much for joining me to listen. And as always, please enjoy your football. Thank you and have a good night. Take care, everybody. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.